I'm, I'm so passionate about applied behavior analysis. And it, like, I really do think that ABA can change the world. Each and every day across the country, there are thousands of incredible Centria technicians and clinicians providing ABA therapy to individuals with autism. And this show is about telling their stories and the stories of our tireless staff that support this powerful mission. I'm your host, Timothy Yeager, and this is the Do Wonders Podcast. And welcome back to another episode of the Do Wonders Podcast. Here we are in week four, and I couldn't be more excited about the number of subscribers that join each and every week. Please share the podcast link with your coworkers, your employees, your bosses, your friends, your families, as we continue to highlight the great stories of our technicians, our clinicians, and the incredible staff that support our powerful mission. This week, I have the privilege to introduce you to a man who needs no introduction, Scott Berry, our CEO. You're going to hear a story about a couple pivots, the pivot from construction to healthcare and the pivot from a degree in business administration to a master's in applied behavior analysis and ultimately how passion develops over time as we all work towards helping every child living with autism develop, pursue, and achieve their own goals and dreams through high quality ABA therapy and support. Scott, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Timothy. It's great to be on. Before we jump into the here and now, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about like growing up and some experiences that uh, maybe impacted you. So uh, growing up, I grew up in, uh, in Michigan, outside of Detroit, in a suburb called Bloomfield Hills uh, with my mom, dad, and one sister uh, who's about two years younger than me. I grew up pretty much in the same house for a vast majority of my life. Basically, uh, I think it was about age three uh, until I went off to college uh, continuously. And I uh, went to Oakland Christian High School for kindergarten through 12th grade. Uh, so obviously being in one school for that long, uh, that's, I, I would assume, pretty formative. Um, you know, one, one thing that I would say that's actually interesting that that's like way back in my life and I don't really um, talk about a lot. Uh, I, when I was younger, I had pretty bad uh, ADD, ADHD. And this was kind of back before um, ADD was kind of as ubiquitous as it is today. Um, like people didn't really know about it. In fact, there were only three doctors in the entire Metro Detroit area mm. that, uh, even diagnosed ADD at the time. Wow. And I was, uh, I was really struggling in school. Like at, at one point I couldn't go to recess because I'd have to stay in with the teacher and like do my schoolwork, which mm. I could do the schoolwork, but I just had trouble like actually focusing and doing the schoolwork. And, uh, I'm sure like, not going to recess kind of compounds. Oh my gosh. There was like a, a time my mom told, you know, I, I kind of remember this, but, uh, she told me that like, I, there were times I would just like come home and, and cry and like, why am I different from everybody else? And like, why can't I go to recess and all that? And then, um, I got on, uh, Ritalin and actually like immediately, like it made a huge change mm -hmm. for me. 
And I was able to uh, like do really well in school. Like basically went from not being able to complete assignments to getting straight A's. And that was pretty cool. But I hated taking the medicine. Like I always felt like weird going to the office at lunchtime Mm -hmm. and like that, like, why do I have to take this medicine? And so um, I actually, you know, really like later in high school and then definitely in college, um, I was able to develop a lot of strategies to be able to uh, stop taking the medicine. And so like really when I uh, was a senior in high school, junior in high school, I kind of like weaned myself off of it and then uh, haven't taken any medicine since then. Although I think there are probably times, you know, where I could use like a little extra assistance with the concentration so I don't have to read the same thing, you know, start reading the same thing multiple times and actually like get through without my mind going off in a million directions. But uh, yeah, that I would say that was a pretty formative experience for me. And then uh, I love activities. I love to play sports. So uh, in school, I played uh, soccer and basketball. And uh, I'll play just about any uh, competitive athletic type of thing. I'm, I'm usually into it. That's awesome. That was experience that took you to college. Mm-hmm. I think I saw you went to Michigan State. I did. University. Go, go green. <laughs> in business. Yes. And so when you, when you picked that route, did you, in college, did you have any you know, thought of what you're going to do post-college? No, I would say not particularly. Actually, so my my initial vision was to, I started off engineering mm-hmm. and I was going to do engineering and then get an MBA. And I was like, this is not for me. <laughs> um, so then I switched to finance and uh, I was like, eh, I think I'm more of a, like a marketing and management guy. Yeah. So then that's what I, f- I ended up finishing in. Uh, and so, uh, that was what I did for my undergrad. And I, you know, I, I think my thought was that I just wanted to initially going into college, like, you know, get a corporate job, work my way up, you know, kind of do what I saw my dad do. Um, you know, he, he was pretty successful at like a fortune, you know, 100 company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, that was my vision for things. And I actually have this like this pretty formative experience, like going into college. I remember like I, I worked really hard in school, uh, high school and well, work hard is maybe like a variable term, yeah. but uh, I did well in school. We'll put it that way. And uh, I was feeling pretty good about myself, got into Michigan State and there were like 20 different orientation weeks that they had. So you basically like go up there, you stay in the dorms for three days, you walk around campus, you, you know, go to the college that you're going to go into. And so, you know, I think they have 20 different ones and in each one, um, there's maybe like, I don't know, somewhere 500 to a thousand kids. Mm. So, and that's, that'll be the whole freshman class then, you know, getting through there. And so I got put into the business group and there were probably, you know, 200 out of the 500 people that were there for the orientation were in the going into mm. the business college. And so they get us all together. We're in this like big lecture room and they do this exercise where everybody introduces themselves, says where they're from and where they would like to be 10 years from now, you know, so like post-graduation. Yeah. And I'm telling you, like almost every person in that room said, I want to be an executive at a Fortune 500 company or I want to own my own business. Mm. And so like, I'm just sitting here thinking like, holy crap, there's 200 people, like all my hard work 
got me to this room yeah. and I'm sitting in a room with 200 other people who want to do exactly what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Like somebody's going to end up disappointed, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> We're not all going to be right. executives at, at fortune 500 companies. And so that like, I don't know, really you know, made me start thinking about like, well, what do I have to do to do something different? And then I got an internship um, called Student Painters where, where basically they send you out to go sell painting jobs mm. and then you have to hire people and then you have to manage them to actually complete the painting jobs and, and hopefully get paid for that. And, uh, and you're basically working off of commission. So you're running a small business. Wow. And, uh, I ended up doing really well at that. Uh, you know, I, I made about $17,000 in the summer between my freshman and sophomore year. Yeah. And I would say, I, I kind of never looked back after, after that, I, you know, I figured out that I needed to be able to punch my own ticket if I wanted to, you know, really be as successful awesome. as I wanted to be. That's awesome. So how does that take you to pediatric nursing and catastrophic care? Yeah. Uh, gr great question. Um, Definitely a good combination of uh, luck and opportunity and determination. Uh, so I was running a construction business, you know, fast forward, you know, 10, 10 or so years, seven, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, uh, whatever it was. And uh, in addition to doing, you know, painting, we were doing, you know, remodeling, siding, windows, roofing, you know, things of that nature, construction services for uh, residential homeowners. And uh, Chris Wilcox, who helped me co-found Centria, um, had actually done the student painting internship with me, you know, back a long, long time in the past. And we had kind of stayed in touch over the years and our paths had diverged. I, I went out and did what I was doing and he ended up going out and working for Maxim Healthcare. And uh, he had a good uh, run over there. I got a little burned out with, you know, some of the things going on and some of the people he was working with. And he called me up and, and was kind of looking for a change. And so um, it was a great opportunity for us to work together. And he actually came and, and did some work with me for the summer in the construction business. But that was in uh, 2009. And Not a good time uh, for ter yeah, terrible yeah. time to be uh, doing anything, you know, residential, real estate related. We, you know, we were in deep into a recession and had you know made a bunch of investments you know preseason uh, leading up to what we expected to be a, a very successful season and and it was just a dud mm. uh, and so we were kind of seeing the writing on the wall and just started talking about healthcare and what he had been doing previously and it was clear that he was still really passionate about healthcare and helping people um, and you know I, I love business and and putting together companies and and building systems and and solutions to help people solve you know problems and so just through talking to him we kind of started shaping up a, a business plan where we really felt like there were people who we could help and and do better than what was currently out there and, and available for them and so you know one day we were, just flipped the switch and basically said, okay, we're moving away from construction services and we're going to start a healthcare company. Wow. Quite a pivot. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But you know, I tell people I was never an expert in, in, um, you know, roofing or painting a house and you, you've got to find the people who are experts at doing the work. And then there's a really important role for, um, understanding what the customer needs, what the client needs and how to fill that and, and kind of bringing the people who can do the work together 
in a way that they can efficiently and effectively meet the needs of the customer. And so, you know, organizing those types of systems is really the type of puzzle that I like to solve and then figuring out how you can turn it into repeatable building blocks and into something that can be a structure that can, you know, scale to meet the needs of lots of people and and to help people to be successful in that system. So along those lines, then you, you came across a, a need of a client that needed ABA therapy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so trying to put that puzzle together and, and find that need, how, how can you talk about that experience and like, here's a need, how can we help them and how that transpired to where we are today? Yeah. Um, so a- absolutely. Uh, it was interesting. So we were actually in network with TRICARE to do pediatric nursing services as well as uh, pediatric PT, OT, and speech for um, critically ill children with complex medical issues. So it's you know, very similar to what we are doing today mm-hmm. uh, with our private duty nursing business. We still, we still do that. They were calling, they, they called us, uh, um, you know, kind of indicated they were calling their other pediatric providers. And I mean, basically what they said is we have three families in Michigan who need ABA therapy, that we have this benefit and there's no contracted provider that can do this service for these three families. And we have always had this philosophy that um, the answer is yes. If it's legal, ethical, and it's going to help the patient, we're going to try to find a way to do it. So, you know, of course, they're like, it was our ethos and we were like, yeah, sure. Okay. Well, how do we do it? You know, yeah. they, they gave us the program outline and, you know, same kind of thing. You know, we worked with them to try to understand, you know, okay, well, who does ABA therapy? Like, what does it look like? Okay. Well, you need a, a BCBA. The BCBA puts together the treatment plan. The BCBA oversees the RBT, you know, how do you train an RBT? What are the qualifications for an RBT? Um, how do you document it? You know, what are we trying to accomplish? What are we trying to achieve, you know, through the therapy? And, you know, so we got an understanding of that. And then uh, to further complicate factors uh, for, for people familiar with Michigan, you know, we always uh, use the the mitten to kind of like I actually describe. caught myself use, doing that the other day. I went yeah. on vacation last week and I described that I was by the thumb, on the top of the thumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah perfect. So <laughs> so uh, using the mitten, uh, we had the, the three families were not like three families in Detroit, you mm. know, or three families in one city. Uh, they happened to be a family that was about as far south as you can get on the palm of your hand before mm. you hit your wrist, you know, yeah. so uh, close down to Ohio, one smack dab in the middle and one that's over by the pinky in a place called Traverse City. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, so so there was zero crossover, like, you know, the same BCBA wasn't working with the you know, right. three families. So we actually had, a, we found three BCBAs, three like a, a amazingly rare and, you know, wonderful BCBAs in each of those areas mm. who could help those families. And, um, and that was it. We, we kind of like put that program together and, you know, the, we gave the BCBAs, they had a lot of autonomy to, you know, kind of structure how it, it was supposed to be. And then, um, we went back to focusing on the catastrophic injury services we were providing and the pediatric private duty nursing services. Uh, but lo and behold, uh, about three years later, they passed coverage for ABA therapy for any child with autism living in the state of Michigan. And uh, we didn't even really know about it. It didn't hit our, our radar. Um, but we were having a, a meeting with a community health organization. 
And at the end of the meeting, we just happened to ask, like, you know, is there anything else we can help you with? And they said, well, you don't happen to do ABA therapy, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, light bulb went off and we we're like, oh, yeah, we can do that. Wow. So that takes off and grows. Yep. In the midst of a successful business, you decide to go back to school. Yeah, yeah, I did. And get your master's in ABA. I did. Can you yes. tell me like, a little bit about that? Like what drove you to, to do that? Well, um, I, you know, I think, first of all, I think psychology and I think uh, the science of behavior is super interesting. Um, so I really like the intellectual framework around applied behavior analysis. Um, I think that uh, a lot of people who interact with people regularly, leaders, business people, you know, probably in, in every field, um, maybe unwittingly or maybe knowingly use a lot of the principles of ABA on a pretty regular basis. Um, you know, maybe not with like, uh, in our services, the same level of like rigor and precision, uh, right. you know, that is required when you're providing clinical services, but certainly in principle and in concept, you know, use a lot of those things. For sure. Um, and so I think, you know, that just appealed to me intellectually. And then also, you know, I kind of figured like, I, I love the services that we provide and I'm really excited about what we're doing. And, mm -hmm. and it's going to take hundreds and, and eventually thousands of clinicians to make the kind of impact that we really want to make on the community of individuals with ASD. And so, you know, the more that I can, you know, know about that, the deeper I can get, the more I can communicate with them about what they're doing, I think the better off we'll be. Yeah. How has it helped you? Certainly trying to, you know, understand, you know, various different initiatives that we have clinically, how to bring, you know, the mission to life, you know, helping every child with autism to develop, pursue and achieve their own goals and dreams through high quality ABA therapy and support. Um, I think means having like a fundamental understanding of how you uh, go about operationalizing that. Yeah. And so, you know, the process of goal setting, assessing, developing a treatment plan, implementing the treatment plan and making sure that the therapy really is high quality and making sure that they really are um, pursuing and achieving their own dreams um, yeah, it, is critical. I mean, it is what we do. So yeah. I think having more of a knowledge base and reading a lot of the fundamental texts and um, articles that have been published by thought leaders in the field of ABA uh, has just helped me to kind of encourage and push different ideas and also understand different ideas that our uh, clinical leadership team is, is trying to put together. That's one thing that's, I would say has impressed me is, uh, you know, a business of this size is a business, mm -hmm. but the amount of conversation that we have around outcomes mm -hmm. is, is been quite impressive for me as a clinical person in this organization. You never know when you come into a large organization if, if that's going to be a focus or not. I don't see any way to, you know, extricate one from the other. Agreed. I mean, I like that's what we have to do. That's what we're doing. That's why we exist. That's why somebody is willing to commit their time to working with us. That's why somebody is willing to pay us. If it's not for helping children with ASD have more skills and live a better life and be able to access more things more independently than like, what are we for? I, I couldn't <laughs> agree more. Um, along those lines, every day, thousands of individuals are receiving therapy from Centria. Mm -hmm. um, 
How does that make you feel? Like, what do you think about when you think about like this tremendous um, service and responsibility that we have? It, make, it makes me feel great. And it also makes me feel um, some anxiety and pressure, I would say, because I know that there's so much more that we can do. And I just want to constantly find ways that across that entire system, I can make sure that everybody's experience is a 10 out of 10. And, you know, un unfortunately, I know that it isn't, you know, and, and part of that is the nature of working with people, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're all not perfect. Um, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. You know, the, you know, 50th tech that we have, you know, down the line is right. not necessarily perfect. And so you have a bunch of people trying to help other people to deliver services to other people. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a lot of variables there, but you know, whatever we can do to, you know, try to construct a system to support the people who are providing the service, who are supporting the people who are getting the service. Um, you know, I, I feel like a great responsibility about that. And so I think it's like both exciting and uh, challenging to think about, I guess. That's how For I sure. feel about it. <laughs> so what's most important to you right now? I think the, the most important thing to build the company while at the same time communicate and bring every single person in the organization along the journey, mm. you know, and, and, you know, hopefully, you know, no one falls out along the way and, and everybody can see the shared vision and, you know, go through the good times and go through the painful times together and, and pull in the same direction to try to get the company to, you know, what it can be, which is, you know, serving not just thousands of children with autism, but tens of thousands of children with autism and, you know, having those services be phenomenal, you know, across the board and, you know, rapidly helping you know, people to achieve their goals and eventually graduate off of services and, and best lives. I've been here for four months now, and I would say that I'm, I've been pretty impressed by the impact of what you just said and, and the amount of people that are on that journey together and seemingly working in unison. It's been quite impressive. All right. So let's transition a little bit. And today I want to talk about conditioned reinforcement. Okay. And if someone took an introductory psych class and you hear this idea of like conditioning, most people think of Pavlov, mm -hmm. right? So Pavlov in late 1800s rang a bell in the presentation of meat and dogs started to salivate when they heard the bell ring. Yeah. Right. Um, but it plays actually a, a really big role in everything that we experience as, as humans, the, you know, our tastes, our style, what we like in music, what we wear, cars we drive are all, you know, have a, a basis in condition reinforcement. But in my training, um, conditioned reinforcement actually plays a critical role in, in development and of language. Mm. And most of our clients have a significant delays in language development. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Okay. You have, you have two kids, right? Yes. Two yep. and three. Uh, just about. Yeah. yeah. There, there were both within a month of their birthdays. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So talk a little bit about their experiences. Can you like think about and remember the first time like they looked at you or, you know, um, maybe you're older on the first words. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. And, uh, those are all learned behaviors, right. Mm -hmm. From a behavioral perspective. Yeah. And what I think 
might be news to like some people that are not trained in this is that uh, learning actually starts to occur in the womb. Mm. And so um, around the sixth month, uh, a child will start to prefer or start to listen to their mother's voice in this womb. That's taking care of all their needs. Um, they start to hear this voice and very similar to Pavlov with the a meat and a bell, that voice starts to take on properties that are reinforcing like the womb. Yeah. And so when a child's born, they're born preferring their mother's voice over any other voice. And there's actually some studies where they presented a mother's voice and a child, it would reinforce a sucking response. Oh, okay. And if they presented someone else's voice, it wouldn't. Hmm. And so they showed that the mother's voice is a conditioned reinforcer. Yeah. Wow. Um, Seven days later, a uh, mother's face is preferred mm. over anyone else's face. And, and the theory is that this, vo- this face is emitting this voice that was conditioned, and now the face becomes conditioned. Right. But if you think about some of our children with autism, they don't attend to voices, mm-hmm. and they don't attend to faces. Yeah. Right? So they won't look at you, and, and some parents often complain that their child acts deaf. Like, mm. you walk into a room, you make noises, you say their name, and they don't orient to you. Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately because they haven't acquired that conditioned reinforcer. Yeah. And if you think about learning, um, learning happens exponentially. Like, like things you learn, like grow at an exponential rate. And if you miss those early developmental milestones, mm-hmm. conditioned re- reinforcement for voices and faces, you miss out on a lot of things. Totally. Like reading books. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm sure you and your wife um, read books to your child. And I'm, I'm sure your, your two-year-old, you said almost two-year-old? Almost two. Almost yeah. two. Um, I'm sure is like, we'll look at books, mm-hmm. right? We'll maybe go and get a book and sit down and turn pages. Yeah. And that book becomes a conditioned reinforcer, um, which means it selects out their response to look at it, but it also maintains their response while they're looking at it. And that's probably a function of you and your wife being reinforcers as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it creates pairing. Um which talks a little bit about Skinner has this quote that says, you know, we shouldn't teach great books. We should teach the love of reading. Yeah. And um, that's also a conditioned reinforcer. And mm-hmm. so I only want to talk about conditioned reinforcer in the way that, um, because a lot of times I think when we talk about reinforcement, people misunderstand that it's like something that it's ex- extrinsic, something mm-hmm. we add to an environment, but it also comes from within. Right. Like, yeah. There's things that, things that drive you professionally that are reinforcers. Right. Um, and so the work that we do, ultimately, we're teaching a lot of skills, but we're also teaching these preferences. And we look at our mission of, like, their goals and their dreams. Mm-hmm. Those are a function of condition reinforcement. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, something that I've thought about recently uh, is the concept around the concept of generalization, mm-hmm. right? And so having a non... Um, I, I know there's a technical term for it, which I cannot recall right now, but uh, having like a non, um, human needed reinforcer, yeah. you know, or a naturally occurring reinforcer that happens in like, you know, typical interactions, yep. you know, is so key to generalizing for sure. something, right? Because you can't always, you know, have somebody there, you know following a, a child around saying, okay, here's your reinforcement. You yep. know, at some point generalization requires, you know, naturally occurring Agreed. reinforcement. And I, I would say if we, along the top of the condition reinforcement, the, the biggest one is um, uh, praise and social attention Right, is a learned conditioned reinforcer. And so yeah. when we're talking about like kids 
um, emitting what's called a tact, mm-hmm. like labeling things in your environment, things you see, taste, hear, feel. Um, that's typically solely under the um, reinforcement of social attention and praise. Right. Yeah. And if you're only teaching that through um, what my faculty advisor, Dr. Greer, talks about is prosthetic reinforcement, mm-hmm. reinforcement that's like kind of props up a behavior. And you only teach, like if you say kids are talking and you give them something about edible for that, well, that's not really going to generalize because kids, you know, parents right. aren't walking around with Skittles every time you talk, yeah, right? And, exactly. and, and the community isn't. And so in order for that behavior to actually, you know, function in an environment in that way, you know, we have to establish one, can, uh, the condition reinforcement for social tension and praise has to mm-hmm. be an important piece of what we do. Um, and we have to be able to teach that in a way to where when they do go into that natural environment, those behaviors do generalize. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, like you said, so, you know, the social attention, it's got to transition to the continuation of the conversation, you Agreed. know, becoming the reinforcement. For sure. All right. So the last question I have and I have for everybody. Okay. Um, what's your why? What's your, purpo- your okay. purpose? What drives you? I would say uh, there's nothing tangible. It's like I, I love to to achieve. I love to see things grow. I love to see people be successful. I love to make something better. Um, I'm really competitive. I, I love to win. So I, I want Centria to be the best. I want each person to achieve their most. Um, I want to do that together in, an, in a coordinated fashion. Uh, so it's definitely not anything, you know, external, right. I, I would say. It's, it's, um, it's all internal. It's all about like, you know, being the best that uh, we can be, that I can be, you know, organizationally, personally, professionally, you know, how can we go out and, and conquer more, build more, do more. Awesome. I think that it's interesting. And I actually um, have talked about this before, but um, people, I think a lot of times talk about like, finding a job that you're passionate about or like, um, you know, finding something that's your passion. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think that that is a false idea. Mm. Okay. I think that a passion is something that needs to be developed and something that needs to be reinforced and your passion for something can go out if it's not reinforced. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's like a, a feeling towards something that you have to build and develop and protect and, and grow um, over time. And for me, um, I would say I did not start out, you know, with a passion per se for ABA therapy. Um, I didn't even know what ABA therapy was. I did not start out with a passion per se for children with autism. Um, and, and so hopefully somebody doesn't hear that and, and misconstrue it for what it was. I just didn't know. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm, I'm so passionate about applied behavior analysis. And like, I really do think that ABA can change the world. Yeah. Um, I'm so passionate about helping kids with uh, ASD to uncover their potential and be able to express themselves. There's like so much trapped inside of each of the kids that we work with mm-hmm. and they literally can each write their own success story and it's up to us, you know, and the, all the other people in their lives to help them do that. And ABA is the key to being able to do that. And so I'm, I'm super passionate about that today. 
but it wasn't something that I started out really knowing that much about. And so right. it was like the deeper that I got and the more that I learned about it, you know, set the stage. And there was, you know, one particular client story that mm. really um, impacted me so much. I, I read it on a Sunday night, um, like late, and they had sent it to us. And it was about how the mom was just so happy about an experience that she had just had with her son um, where uh, they went to a family party, like basically the first family outing they had been able to have. The son was um, an older adolescent and, you know, had had aggressive behaviors and they went to this family party. The son had a good time, played, interacted with other people. And at one point they um, found him sitting at the kitchen table and they were like, well, what's wrong? And he said, I'm not having fun anymore. I'd like to go. And so they got him into the car and they went home and he followed his routine and went to bed. And she was writing this email. You could just like hear the emotion. Um, and she was like, that was so amazing because before that would have been just like a disaster, like, you know, crazy behaviors, hours, if not days to like get back into a routine. Yeah. You know, and then I, I found out that there had actually been like a, a traumatizing situation mm. where you know, the son had attacked the you know mom at one point before services started. So to come from just what I was interpreting from her email, like where they were to being able to like everybody should be able to do like. And most ahead. parents take granite. Yeah. Right? Go hang out with your cousins and your yeah. aunts and uncles and then be able to go home and like have a night at home. like. Everyone should be able to do that. And I don't know why, but like that story got me. And I was like, we have to do this for everybody. Yeah. We have to like make that possible for every child to be able to do and every family to be able to, you know, go do those things. Awesome. So I don't know. I think uh, that's, that's also part of the why. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. you sharing that. And I, I would say that your reference to passion is also a reference to condition reinforcement, right? Like yeah, it's, totally. it's, it, it's actions that align with your values that become reinforced over time that really drive you. And so, yeah, I really appreciate that. Agreed. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thanks for meeting me. Take care. Yep. And that concludes another episode of us telling the stories of our incredible staff and their work to support our powerful mission. Until next week, do wonders. <laughs>